Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. In 1919, Harry Becker arrived in St. Louis. The Jewish immigrant from Poland was escaping violence and oppression. And in St. Louis, he opened a shoe repair shop just a few blocks north of Fairground Park in North City on Warney Avenue. That's the setting of a new novel inspired by real events. And to interview its author, here's producer Alex Hoyer. The book is Harry Gets Wise, and its author is Michael Vines. Michael grew up in St. Louis and in University City. After grad school, he worked as a copywriter and creative director for ad agencies in New York City. He's retired now and continues to live in New York, and I'm pleased to welcome Michael Vines to St. Louis on the Air. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Alex. Thank you for having me. So the main character in this book is Harry Becker, and he was inspired by your real-life grandfather, whose name is very similar, Harry Beckerman. And the stories of how each of them in both the novel and in real life came to the United States are very similar. Tell us about that. Well, um, the novel does um, tell his story in terms of how he arrived. He was living in Poland with his family, a little shtetl out, uh, called in Sokolova, Poland. And he fled in the early teens and came here without his family. He was married and had uh, two daughters. Um, and then he went back. And he, when he came to, New, came to St. Louis and he got settled, opened up his shop, and then he uh, called, sent for his, his wife and children. Actually, there were three daughters. And um, they, he met them in New York, and they took them, he took them back to St. Louis. So we mentioned in the intro that the shoe repair shop is in North St. Louis, and Harry lives very close by. That's true in real life and, and in the novel. Um, but I want to center ourselves in the novel uh, now. Harry Becker is idealistic, and he has a vision about the so-called American dream. What is that dream? The dream is to come to America, the land of opportunity, where all the immigrants uh, pretty much had the same vision of America. It was a place where they could live in freedom, have new opportunities, um, to raise their families and give them opportunities and to not be subject to the oppression that they had been in their native countries. And the name of the shop is Liberty Shoe Repair. And surely the, the name of that business is, is reflected in his dream of America? Yes. Um, he came over on the boat uh, alone, and the first thing he saw, of course, was the Statue of Liberty. And that was a, one, a, an incredible, meaningful monument to him. When he came, finally opened his shop, he named his shop after that, and he called himself the Liberty Shoe Doctor. So you mentioned that Harry comes to America alone and sends for his wife. Uh, her name is Lena. Uh, what is their relationship like? Well, <laughs> they have a, a very um, close relationship. They have very different characters, but they are bonded 
by um, Harry, their mutual respect, and uh, they happen to have a very loving and sensual relationship in the book. She also has some association with the business, too. What's that? Well, she went to night school when she got here, and Harry has no head for numbers or organization or anything like that. So she decides that she's going to do his books and and manage the um, that part of his business for him so he doesn't have to worry about it. And he originally just had, you know, scratches on pieces of paper that he left anywhere. So she organized his books and really helped him manage his business. I should mention that our conversation up to this point, that the real life events and the events in the novel are very close side by side. But one part in where it diverges is when two men show up in Harry's shop one day and their names are Tony and Carlo. Who are Tony and Carlo? They're uh, organized crime figures. Um, Tony is the older, world-weary one. Carlo is a young wannabe. He's only 21. And um, they are given this territory, and their job is to lean on Harry and to, uh, to shake him down and muscle him for tribute. And how does Harry react to that? Well, he doesn't have much choice. Um, first he resists, but Tony the Pipe doesn't mess around, and he's, they, his name's Tony the Pipe because he carries a, a lead pipe in his, uh, in, with him, and he, uh, he makes use of it and threatens Harry with it if he doesn't uh, cooperate. Harry tries to go to the police, but what happens? Mm-hmm. Well, the police, who he's always been, you know, so proud of because in In America, the police weren't secret. You know, they were there. He introduced his kids and his family to the local police officer. In the book, his name's Officer Keegan. And he says, this is the man who will help you. He will keep you safe. But it turns out that uh, Keegan's on the take, too. So he's no help when it comes to, to, to the crime figures muscling in. So the title of the book, as we mentioned, is Harry Gets Wise. And that is also a a statement in that as he experiences more of America, it is not all it was uh, trumped up up to be in that he starts to, I guess, uh, chip away at what his vision of the American dream was. Is is this experience with uh, Tony and Carlo and then the the police response, I, I suppose that that is kind of the first instance of that. It is in Harry's life. Um, and then, of course, it extends to the to the world outside of his family and his business because this story takes place primarily around 1954 and that is the height of the Joe McCarthy era and he feels betrayed by everything that Joe McCarthy represents as well. Um, so he, he comes as a naive and he has to realize that things aren't as they seem in America. So. Tony of the Tony and Carlo duo, Tony really represents the antithesis of the American dream. And he is evil. He is nasty. I I do love how you developed his his character and you describe him with the with the holster and and the lead pipe. Uh, The the other half of that duo is is Carlo. And and you mentioned that uh, I think you used the word wannabe. And he is also doing bad things. But 
throughout the book, Harry becomes rather fond of Carlo, and and Carlo becomes fond of Harry. How how does their relationship play out, at least in the beginning in the novel? Well, Carlo is kind of, um, he's in the wrong place for himself. I think in the book I say, you know, his father was was part of the uh, organized crime family in St. Louis. His father died, and and the man who took over uh, was was close with his father who helped him, and now he is going to help his son, Carlo, and gives Carlo every opportunity. But in the book, I describe Carlo as, as a bad fit for that business. It's as if um, an artist had a father who was uh, an insurance salesman, so he became an actuary. It really wasn't in Carlo's nature, but it's all he knew. He was raised with it. Yeah, and, and what are some of the some of the stories that that play out between Harry and and Carlo that that really represent kind of the the growing friendship that that they develop and and I think it's fair to call it a friendship. I think so too. I mean, they become very Harry becomes very close with uh, Carlo. Uh, the first thing Carlo does is he he uh, gets Harry involved in playing pool, and Harry has a natural ability for it. You know, I describe Harry as a guy who. Um, was more of an artist. He had a great eye. He had uh, he had the kinds of things that could be applied to pool, though he'd never played it before. And he becomes really good at it. And he starts beating Carlo in nine ball handily. And next thing you know, Carlo's setting up games for him and taking the the vig, <laughs> you know, taking skimming off some of the profits. And Harry's beating everybody in town. Harry has a reputation now as being a a serious pool player. Mm-hmm. There's one scene in the book where uh, Carlo procures a pool cue. Uh, can can you talk about that scene? Sure. Um, they're at Garavelli's, and uh, right next to Garavelli's is Arada's uh, Pool Hall, which was the pool hall in in St. Louis from the early part of the 20th century. And he set up a big game for him with a guy from out of town, from Chicago. And um, this Chicago guy thinks he can fleece Harry, but he doesn't know what he's getting into. But at Garavelli's, Carlo gives Harry this present, and it's a pool cue. It's a great, you know, instead of like just anything off a rack, it's a two-piece, and it's it says, um, got some initials on it, and it, uh, EJE it says, and Harry says, notices it, and he says, what's, what's this? He says, oh, well, that's uh, it's the model. He says, no, it's not the model. It's a really hoppy model. What's this? And he realizes that the pool cue belonged to someone else, and it was hot. And Harry refuses to use it because of his principles. And um, he goes in, and there's a, you know, a little altercation about that, but Harry goes in and he plays without the pool cue, and uh, he winds up losing. That's St. Louis native and author Michael Vines talking with producer Alex Hoyer. He's the author of the new book, Harry Gets Wise. We'll have more of that conversation in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. 
Choosewood.com. Welcome back. Let's return to producer Alex Hoyer's conversation with St. Louis native and author Michael Vines. Vines is the author of Harry Gets Wise, a new book about a Jewish immigrant's path to and experiences in North St. Louis. The novel is inspired by real-life events. Here's Alex. I want to jump now to another character in the book, and that is Libby. Uh, She is one of Harry and Lena's daughters. Uh, She goes to Wash U. Uh, She works for Famous Bar downtown, and we learn that she is gay. And uh, there's a story in the book involving a woman named Shelly. Who is Shelly? Shelly is... A real New York Jew, I guess you can say, the first one that Libby ever met. And um, Shelley is in her art classes with her, and they both come to, they share so much in common. They have the art, they share a love of baseball. Shelley's a Brooklyn Dodger fan, they go to a game together. And uh, it also turns out that they share a mutual attraction for one another, and they develop. A relationship while they're at Washington U. I want to read a paragraph from the book. This is from page uh, 93, and it kind of demonstrates the relationship between Libby and, and Shelley, but I think it also gives a glimpse of how uh, St. Louis this book is. And, and this uh, section reads, Normal couples like Shelley's roommate and her boyfriend typically went out on Saturday night dates. If there were no dances scheduled, they might go to a movie at the Tivoli or the Varsity in the Del Mar Loop then drive up the road to Garavelli's on DeBolivar for an after-movie snack, and then, if things were working out, drive to Art Hill, just a short hop from the pavilion where they'd park in front of the art museum for some necking and heavy petting under the stony gaze of an equestrian statue of Louis IX of France, the city's namesake. That's a section from Michael Vine's book, Harry Gets Wise. When I read that, Michael, I liked how you were developing the relationship between Libby and Shelley, but that paragraph jumped out to me as being, this is very heavily researched and it is so St. Louis. Why was that important to you to have St. Louis almost as a character in the book, I felt? Yeah, I agree with that. Um, That's a great way to characterize it. Um, St. Louis is, you know, where I was raised and um, it was very much a part of, of who I of my upbringing and how I grew up, and I I loved it. Um, I don't know who, (laughs) I think somebody said, I can't find the attribution, but somebody said that writers have all the raw material they'll ever need by the time they're five years old. And if that's true, then I got a lot of my raw material from my first five years in, in North St. Louis. It was a bustling neighborhood. It was very lively. It had every store and shop that anybody could need. And um, I, I guess I never forgot it. It was ingrained in me. Yeah, describe a little bit more of what the community was like. Um, in the neighborhood around Warney Allen, the O'Fallon neighborhood, which has um, <coughs> deteriorated quite a bit, of course, um, it was, like I said, it was a real thriving neighborhood neighborhood. Um, you didn't have to leave the neighborhood to get anything you wanted. It was like kind of like 
living in a New York neighborhood at the time, you could go to the grocery store across the street. There was a hardware store next door. There were shops for, you know, there was a, a, a Woolworth, I believe it was, butcher, clothing stores, anything. And, of course, Lucille's, uh, the, the, the Warney Grill, which was uh, the greatest hamburger joint anybody ever, ever went to. Uh, so it was a real close-lit neighborhood. You didn't need cars. You, you walked it. And if you had to leave it, you took the, the trolley. So I want to return to Libby. As I mentioned, uh, she is gay. We talked about her relationship with, with Shelley. And, um, of course, this is during the 1950s. How, how, does, she, how, do, how does she handle that? With much shame. Um, and she's, of course, hiding, she's hiding it from everybody she knows. And um, it took her a long time before she finally came out to anyone. She has one close girlfriend who she told about, uh, told, told about it. And then uh, there's a character named Lenny Goldstein, who um, is a uh, professor, assistant professor at the University of Chicago, who's in town uh, working for um, integrating St. Louis's uh, restaurants. And it's, it's there that he talks about, for the first time, she never heard this before, but equality for everyone, even people of various, you know, uh, different sexual orientations. And um, that's her connection th- through that group of um, people. She becomes more comfortable, she meets other people, and she does come out to... Um, to people within that little coterie. So Libby becomes an activist herself, uh, working in the same group that Lenny Goldstein is in. And there's a there's a scene at a lesbian bar on Olive Street. Can you talk about that? Yeah, um, they go there. Um, this group of um, of uh, activists uh, to integrate. <laughs> You know, they had been integrating the, the restaurants, so they also wanted to integrate this bar because it was a lesbian bar, but they wouldn't serve Negroes. Uh, black people were not permitted, and, and they were just, um, they just couldn't believe it. So they um, went there with their black friends, lesbians or not, and the lesbian community, and they demanded that they all be served, that they use the same tactics that they used to integrate restaurants. And uh, I, I won't tell the whole story either, but, you know, um, it becomes a, a heated confrontation there. And, it, and it, it, uh, the narrative is propelled by that event. Yeah, and, and it was really about Libby wanting a fair shake. That's exactly what Harry wants, too, in, in life. I mean, fairness and e- equality are, are a theme throughout this book. Yeah, that's primarily... Uh, it's a tremendous theme in the book because both of them, Harry, Libby, and so many other people, are fighting for the things they didn't have, um, equality, freedom for all. And Harry, um, you know, at some point Harry's going to f- realize, find out that Libby's a, a lesbian. And even though it's a shock to him, he realizes, my daughter is experiencing the same kind of oppression as I did in the old country. And Harry 
that's you know it's an eye-opening revelation for him, and he it makes it much easier for him to accept Libby's situation. We talked earlier about how rich in detail in St. Louis this book is from the bar on Olive Street. Uh, some of the book takes place in and around Washington University and, of course, uh, the parts of Northside that, that we've been, been talking about. This is based on your own experience growing up, but what kind of research did you have to do for this book? Well, I did quite a bit. Um, you know, um, before I wrote the book, I, I wasn't even sure who the statue of St. Louis. I didn't know anything about that. I knew it was St. Louis, but I didn't know his history or anything else. So I I did a lot of research about that. I did a lot of research about each neighborhood where various ethnic groups um, formed their own little enclaves. There was the hill, there's Dogtown. Uh, that was Irish, I think, primarily. Um, uh, I did research about the Veiled Prophet Ball, uh, which has a an interesting history that I knew nothing about, but features in the story. Um, so I did do quite a bit of research about the city and its history. There are also scenes that take place at Sportsman's Park um, and uh, Cardinals baseball uh, runs th- throughout the book at times. And I understand that you are a big Cardinals fan yourself, but the but the games that are described in the book uh, are accurate to what the actual games are. Was was that just um, a fun uh, thing that you did uh, based on your Cardinals fandom to include in the book, or does it run deeper in other ways? Well, I think probably both. Uh, I, I wanted the book to be um, as real and honest as I could. I, I mean, of course I'm making things up, but there's, you know, you're looking to tell a story with uh, that, that reveals some truths. So um, I, I told these stories. It was there's you know, there's the internet. There's the, there used to be a baseball encyclopedia. Now everything is online, and you can look up and find play by play every game that was ever played. I believe, and I rec- and I went there and I I did that just because I wanted the local color. I wanted it to be accurate, and there was no reason to make it up if I could find out find the real the real events and the real facts. So I don't want to give away the ending, but I love how you pull all the story threads uh, together at the end, particularly as it relates to uh, the street toughs, Tony and Carlo. Um, people will have to read the book if they want to know uh, how that ends. But again, the book title is is Harry Gets Wise. Tell us, do you think Harry gets wise? He does. Um, he uh, the, the he's no longer the naive he was when he arrived in America. He learned that America has its dark side. Yet, and I think you know we talked about. You mentioned that uh, Tony, that Tony the Pipeolaco, the tough guy, uh, kind of represented that that violent side of America, that real harsh negative side. And then Carlo, his young sidekick, with whom Harry develops a very close relationship. Well, he's, he represents, yeah, there's a tough side, there's that bad side, but there's still within America that possibility. There's something good in it. And that's what Harry develops and sees in, in, uh, in Carlo and develops, and that's how the relationship develops. 
this is the first uh, book that is a trilogy uh, that is inspired by by your family. Can can you briefly talk about what what the other two books are? Uh, sure. Um, the second book is called Treblinka Mon Amour, and it tells uh, the story of one of Harry's grandsons, Marty, who comes to New York City and uh, has a relationship. Well, <laughs> uh, he, he winds up living next door to a woman who's a Holocaust denier. And uh, that's, that's the inciting incident for their confrontation about um, her denying the Holocaust. I won't go into the details of the plot, but it's, th- that's that story. And the next story is called A Reason to Believe, and that's Harry's youngest grandson, Joe, who uh, also is in New York, and he works in advertising, and he's highly conflicted about telling lies for corporate clients. And in both stories, the themes of trying to find, um, trying to live the American dream somehow in a in a society that sometimes makes it very hard to do. What made you want to write all these books? Well, you know, I uh, I. I've been writing all my life, one way or another, just about, and um, the themes of these stories are very similar. When I I wrote I, I wrote them independently, and I realized I was writing, in a funny sense, the same book three times. The stories are completely different, night and day. The tone is much different from one book to the other, but they all share uh, common themes about America about what it is, about what it is to be an American, and about what the possibilities of being an American are. And they're all within the, uh, I think, the tra- tradition of the Jewish culture in America. When you look back on having written these books now, you spent, um, you spent many years, uh, decades now, in New York City, which is uh, where you made your career. But when when you look back on it, what what are the memories that that you have of of St. Louis and and particularly your grandfather? Well, um, I've always remained close to my family. Many of them are still living in St. Louis, um, and uh, so I've had a very strong connection to the city uh, through my family primarily through the Cardinals to a surprisingly large effect. Uh, <laughs> and um, my memories of my grandfather are um, very warm. And uh, I, I kind of say somewhere in one of the books that if you were to look up grandfather in the dictionary, Harry could be the could there could be a picture of Harry there. He, all the associations and connotations, all the positive ones you have with a grandfather's qualities were embodied in him. He was just so tender and warm and loving and kind, and uh, did anything for the kids. Michael Vines is the author of the new book Harry Gets Wise. It's available online as well as in several local bookstores and at STL Stylehouse. The owners of STL Stylehouse, by the way, Jeff and Randy Vines, are Michael Vines' nephews. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Alex. I really enjoyed it. It was my pleasure.
Today's episode was produced by our executive producer, Alex Hoyer. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.